Hey, y'all, I'm going to take a second to give a quick shout out to the official mortgage lender of the Hunt With Deep podcast. That's Casey Burns of Prime Lending Mortgage. I've known Casey for 10 years and he's the only lender I use. I've used Casey to purchase two houses and the process has been seamless and easy each time. He's the heart of an educator and he truly cares about what's best for his clients. He specializes in VA loans, but can handle FHA, conventional investment loans as well. He's a true expert and specialist in his field, and there's no one I recommend more than Casey. You can contact Casey at casey.burns at primelending.com. Reach him by phone at 919-710-1864. You can also check out all his reviews at www.closewithcasey.com. Thanks, y'all. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hunt, Lift, Eat podcast brought to you by Hunt, Lift, Eat Official. I'm Carter McKenzie. Joining me co-host this week, we got Perry Eisner. What's going on, man? Not much, brother. Good to be back. Dude, when you texted me and I saw the topic for tonight's conversation, I started getting excited. I was sitting there in the office. I was like, man, this could be... We could do hours on this. This is like right (laughs) in my wheelhouse. And we we haven't really devoted a full podcast to this. Um, particularly with the guests. So I'm, I'm pumped for tonight's conversation, man. Yeah, I had a feeling you'd be interested. This is uh, something you and I have talked ad nauseum about on the in the blind or on the you know on the porch of the cabin over ten or fifteen uh, bush lattes, and you know, hopefully, folks like it. And if you don't, sorry about it. But we're talking food plots, we're talking land management, we're talking habitat management, and we're talking you know, everything that comes with that and, and prepping for whitetail. Um, this week we're joined by a good buddy of mine, Brett Beato, who I didn't know how to pronounce your last name until about a minute and a half ago, Brett, because I always knew you as Brett Burrito. But Brett, welcome to the podcast, man. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. This is my uh, <laughs> first podcast, so bear with me. But no, my name is uh, Brett Beato, and I'm a firefighter, and I also have a landscaping company. Um Started off with a horticulture degree from ABAC and ended up becoming a firefighter. So kind of utilizing both aspects there. But now it's a going to be a pleasure and look forward to this conversation. Heck yeah, man. And we've been talking about this for a while now. Um, when I got roped into this whole podcasting business, uh, your name was at the forefront of my mind. I think you and I talked about it last fall, actually. Um, so Brett and I know each other through a mutual friend. Uh, shout out Spencer Anderson and shout out Colby as well. Um, and we've hunted together several times. Brett's also a native uh, of, of Georgia here. Well, I guess not originally, but I know you as a native of Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. And so we've been hunting together. Yeah, we've been uh, hunting together for several years, man. And uh, killed a couple deer together. And uh, you helped me track uh, an archery kill f- on one hellacious uh, blood trail that ended up going onto a neighbor's property that was not conducive to, to retrieving it. And once we went through that blood trail together, I was like, Oh man, there was like four hour blood trail, Perry. It was miserable. And, uh, I was like, Oh, oh yeah. this guy's all right. This guy's, if he's willing to go through this with me, like I like this guy. Oh, yeah. Didn't we lose Colby's dog? Yeah. We lost his dog and like his dad was real pissed about it. And then we had to go find the dog. It was a, it was really a disaster. Yeah, it was, would not recommend four out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Four out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Would not recommend. Yeah. But, uh, Brett, you mentioned, uh, a back and, and being a firefighter and landscaping and you kind of do it all. Um, for those that aren't familiar with the great state of Georgia and our, in our education system down here, will you, uh, explain a back? 
<laughs> so ABAC is uh, short for Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College, and it's in essentially South Georgia, Tifton area, if you're familiar, just north of Valdosta. Um, there's really nothing there, so don't even bother stopping by. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's it's honestly a great school, and I did learn a lot. Um, learned how to drive a lot of tractors and met a lot of cool folks, and I mean, that's where I met Colby, so I can't complain one bit. Yeah. And that's, uh, you, you left there with a horticulture degree and that, you know, fair to say that kind of spurred your, your interest or your obsession into land management and hunting whitetails. Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say I've always enjoyed hunting whitetails from a younger age. Um, so I'm originally from Long Island, New York, but my family had land in uh, like Saratoga Springs, north of Albany, New York. So I grew up hunting up there from six, seven years old until we moved to Georgia in uh, like 2008. But yeah, so I grew up loving hunting whitetails and all that. Um, but the land management thing kind of came later on. Um, I've essentially hunted public land my entire life. I never hunted any private land here in Georgia until 2020. Um, ironically, I got my first lease and my family bought this property that I began to manage. So it was kind of, I knew enough about turf grass from obviously my college experience and work experiences. And then, you know, just kind of plugging that in to managing food plots and everything. It was um, a learning experience, but it was, it wasn't really that hard for me either because I essentially knew a decent bit just to be dangerous. You know what I mean? That's awesome, man. And it's, it's cool how, cause like I, I was kind of the exact opposite of you. I grew, I was one of those, you know, spoiled country boys that always had private land to hunt on my entire life, just from, from family farms, et cetera. And so like the land management aspect was always there for me. I always saw my old man doing it. Um, and I always loved it. And I've, I, I like got into public land hunting, like 2020, basically a couple of years ago or maybe a little bit before that. So it's, it's cool to hear that different perspective and then to develop that, that love for the land management later in life. Oh, absolutely. It sounds like we're kind of inverted, but yeah, I mean, I dove all in. I started watching videos with, uh, you know, Dr. Grant with growing deer TV, um, Jeff Sturgis. I got big into the Mississippi deer lab with a uh, Dr. Bronson Strickland, um, kind of went all in and then I watched some Jeff Sturgis videos as well. I think just between those channels is what, um, you know, there's so much you can learn from YouTube and the internet. So that's definitely been a key component in, you know, helping me become a better steward of the land. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. That's how I learned how to edit this damn podcast was freaking hours <laughs> on YouTube. So you could figure anything out. Anybody can figure anything out. So that's, that's the way to do it. Um, uh, and you know, Shout out Jeff Sturgis. That guy's the man when it comes to food plots. And, you know, I want to unpack all that. Uh, and you've, you know, you've gone really deep with it. I mean, you talk about soil composition and you talk about, we're on a lot of the same food plot Facebook groups. And I'm convinced hunting groups are the only thing Facebook's useful for anymore. Um, oh, yeah. And I Facts. see you comment. Yeah, I see you comment on all that stuff. And I'm not brave enough to. I don't, I don't know enough. And soil composition. <laughs> and you've linked up with the forestry department and biologists and QDMA and, and all this stuff. And I want to unpack all that and let you and Perry kind of nerd out on that. 
But why don't you set why don't you set the stage for us, man? Tell us about your property or properties that you're managing and and looking out for. So we kind of have a picture of of what we're going to unpack here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, ironically, I went from hunting public land my entire life, you know, 10 plus years to I got my first lease ever. And then my family bought the property, like I said, in uh, July 2020. So from there on, it was, you know, hunting two different pieces of private land. Um, the one property is in Pike County, Georgia, which, which is West Central, and then the others in Meriwether County. They're probably 30, 45 minutes, um, essentially due east and west of each other. Um, so the one property is 61 acres, and it, like I said, it's a part of a, a big quail plantation that they broke it up. So it's a mixture of upland pines. Um, there's two big fields, or I guess big as perspective, but one is about... 14 acres and then the other is probably like five or six so i mean for a 61 acre piece of land you know that's pretty big for that size um and then the rest is just kind of just hardwood creek bottom and then my lease in merriweather county it's 105 acres and it's actually an active cattle farm so it's you know mainly open pasture and then there's about 40 acres of woods that's fenced off where the cattle can't go into the woods so kind of like a little breakdown of it but the property both properties are surrounded by pretty large uh adjacent landowners um the one in pike the neighbors to the left and right and across the street it's essentially just you know someone with a house and a back 40 or you know a two three acre piece of property but the one property behind us he uh he has like 2800 acres and he's real big into uh the you know land management and everything like that when i talked to the uh, forestry guys they said they go out there every year and burn at least a couple hundred acres for them so super thankful to have uh someone like that immediately adjacent to our property so when you first um when you first had these properties kind of open up in terms of having private land access and coming from your background when you, you know, the first couple of times you go out there, I imagine you're just kind of doing an inventory, trying to make an assessment of, of what's there, what's not, what did that process look like for you in terms of like how you were going to prioritize, um, the, the, the different things you wanted to implement, identify what was missing, identify what was, you know, what was there and what you had, you know, in terms of food cover, you know, all the necessities, you know, how did that, how did that process break down for you? Yeah. So Essentially, you know, my family, like I said, bought the property in July 2020. So the first thing I wanted to hit was putting out some uh, mineral sites and trail cameras, just seeing what I had. And uh, there was a couple of feeders on the property. So naturally filled them up with corn, put a trail camera on it. And, you know, I kind of let the trail cameras and everything do the, uh, you know, inventory for me on the deer aspect. And then I just briefly walked the property. Um, it's a lot of, I mean, it was essentially the first biologist I worked with said it was turnkey because I don't know if you're familiar with like basil acre, but all the upland pines were in 40, 50 basil acres. So it was a lot of an open canopy essentially. So there's a lot of good thick undergrowth, a lot of native uh, grasses and forbs and browse for the deer, quail, turkey and everything. So it was from a habitat perspective, it was essentially perfect 
And so scouting was pretty easy for me. Um, I think that's a really good point. And I think a lot of people or anybody when they get to a property or they take over management wise or hell, maybe they've been doing it for 20 years and that's just how it is. But maybe a lot of folks will see that native browse or see that thick stuff that one can be covered and two is really natural and native forage. That's gold, green gold right there. And we'll get in there and get all, you know, happy with the bush hog and just like crush and, and just get rid of all that stuff. Cause we have this, like we're bred to have this lawn like mentality when, and, and that doesn't translate to wildlife management and wildlife habitat. And you probably get that cause you're in the damn lawn care business on the side too. <laughs> Yeah, and the reality is, and, and a lot of people don't realize this, and I'm sure, Brett, you're familiar with it, a, a good portion of the of the southeast, historically, especially once you get you know east of, of the, the Appalachian Mountain Range, there was actually a lot of, of pine savannas scattered throughout the southeast. And it was that big basal area, those big mature pine trees, but still a, an open, um, you know, relatively open canopy that allowed a lot of sunlight. It allowed a lot of that that native uh, kind of herb forb layer, those grasses and a lot of the, you know, the shrubs and that's, that stuff provided awesome habitat for quail and for turkeys and for deer. And that really um, became kind of, kind of scarce and, and kind of missing when a lot of the industrial timber um, plantations started to pop up in the Southeast with, with paper mills, et cetera. And, like I, it, the property that, that you're describing sounds like a property that I've been on with one of my clients. And that's what he's done is he's worked to recreate that native kind of savanna, pine savanna prairie. And it's, it's awesome for quail. And it sounds like those folks are probably managing that for, you know, at, at least quail was part of the equation, if not the, the driving factor for that management style and technique. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, honestly, it's, it's such a shame that, um, either prescribed fire or natural fire has been essentially taken away from the equation for the entire Southeast. I mean, I know if you go down to like South Georgia, North Florida, you can see those open savannas. And I mean, it's beautiful, but it's kind of a shame that, you know, we think the South, you know, when you think of the woods, it's just super thick kudzu, privet hedge, everything. It shouldn't be, unfortunately. But yeah, it was, uh, the property was extensively managed. And like I said, the first biologist that walked in with me, he was like, honestly, this property, you just have to, you know, strike a match. Um, you could put in a couple of food plots if you want. But he said the big thing was we had to kill a lot of does. I think he said the first year we had to kill six to 10 does on 61 acres, which, you know, that's, that's a lot of deer. It's <laughs> a lot yeah. of trigger time. That is a oh, lot of yeah. trigger time. We were talking before and, you know, there's a couple different reasons why your density's so high and that's, it's a good problem to have, but it's something to be aware of. And I think a lot of folks are hesitant to kill like quote unquote too many does, but that buck to doe ratio is really important when it comes to the biology side of, of wildlife management. Yeah. the bu- I mean, I think personally, the biggest thing is there, the habitat can only support so many mouths. You know what I mean? Um, now I mean, good habitat when you're doing fire and you thin out the canopy and, you know, you have a couple good food plots, whatever, um, you know, you could sustain a pretty extensive deer herd, but 
you know, when you start hitting that like 30, 40, 50 deer per square mile, that's when you start running kind of lean and you start seeing these deer, you know, in January, February, um, they start showing ribs, especially those bucks chasing hard after the rut. I mean, they need to pack on that fat and those carbohydrates. And when there's so many mouths to feed and the habitat can't support that, then, you know, that's when you're going to start seeing malnutrition, deer starting to die, antler score starts to go down and everything that you don't want. <laughs> Fawn recruitment goes down. I mean, mm-hmm. that, you know, there's, like you said, there's a carrying capacity for every piece of land. And, you know, if you start to push the limits of that carrying capacity, you're going to see diminished results in the health of the herd, the size of the bucks. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's cool that that was, that was a, a tip out of the gate that the biologist gave you. So I'm curious, was the, was that biologist, was it a state biologist or who, uh, who'd you engage to, to help you with that? Correct. So I enrolled the property with the, uh, George has a DMAP program, deer management assistance program. And, uh, you can, you know, find them online, you know, quick Google search, but, uh, yeah, they have, I want to say they have four different packages. Um, essentially it's catered to the size of the property, but, uh, it was, you know, basically you get their phone number, email address, and you could send them, um, questions, you know, day or night and they're super responsive and helpful. But they do uh, one site visit a year and they wrote up a property management plan, uh, you know, trail camera surveys, gave me uh, like a jawbone extractor, um, uh, a digital scale to weigh the deer. And that was a big thing that I never really thought of was the biggest thing was aging these deer on the jawbone and then collecting the weights and the sex of them. Because that was one thing that, you know, hunting public land, it kind of escaped me was, you know, you want to shoot a mature deer and, oh, he weighed, you know, maybe this much. But when it comes to managing a specific piece of property, that's kind of like your baseline, right? You don't know if your management plan is matching your goals, right? You don't want to be wasting your time and money, especially now with how expensive everything is. So you don't want to be going in here and saying, oh, I'm going to put in these food plots. I'm going to do all this work with the dozer and, you know, clear all these trees or whatever. And, you know, let's say your deer antler score and weights aren't going up. Well, where is the problem? So it's it was cool to, to see that and kind of realize it. Um, but, yeah, it was that was the one big thing I messed up the first year was we killed a bunch of deer and uh, we didn't record any of the jawbones or weights. <laughs> That's a, that's a really important point, man. And it's something that I don't think a lot of folks do. Hell, we haven't done it on our own property and it's something I've thought about a lot. I mean, I have a, you know, I have a background of wildlife and, and it's, you're exactly right. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. If you can't identify those metrics and track them through the years and start to see patterns emerge and see what's working and see what's not, then, you know, you can spend a lot of time chasing your tail. And I I think there's a lot of property owners out there that, that, don't take advantage of some of those resources that that are available, whether it be through the state or whether it just be through self-education, through, you know, watching some of these, you know, these guys that are on YouTube that are legitimate experts in in these areas. And um, the reality is you can uh, you can make a difference on a property pretty quickly. Most the, the vast majority of the southeast is managed um, by private landowners. I mean, yeah, there's public land available, but it's not like when you go out West to these, you know, these States that have tens of thousands 
of acres of, of public land. I mean, most of the, most of the property in the Southeast is owned by private landowners. And so it's, it's kind of up to us as private landowners to take that responsibility, you know, track, track those metrics and, and be diligent about, um, that data if we want to really truly maximize the potential of a, of a piece of dirt. Oh, absolutely. And that was, I would say one of the bigger things starting out was, you know, kind of breaking down the goals of this property, right? I looked at one of the first things I looked at was the County Boone and Crockett record scores. So I was looking at, you know, what is this County capable of? And uh, I think the all time rifle kill was like 177 inches and the all time bow kill was like 136 inches, something like that. So, I mean, for Georgia, you know, that's respectable for the Southeast. I mean, this isn't Iowa. You're not going to kill a 200 inch deer. That's just not realistic. But I knew kind of a baseline of, you know, in, you know, five years, I'm if I do everything right, I might have a chance at, you know, 120, 130 inch deer with my bow. And that's kind of been a, a goal for me was I want to kill like 130 inch deer with my bow out there. So, but that's another key component is you have to look at your property, the resources you have available to you, whether you have uh, tractors, zero turn sprayers, all that, and your budget and the time you're willing to put forth. Um, you know, if you don't have the time or money to put forth, then, you know, you got to base your goals, you know, accordingly. So I think that's, that was a big thing as well is uh, just kind of setting the goals. And uh, I mean, the first year I ended up killing like 126 inch nine pointer with my rifle. But uh, so I'm chasing that. There's a pretty big eight pointer out there. I'm, hopefully he sticks around this year and I'll get a poke at him. So we're, we're in that time of year where, where folks are thinking about food plots and, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks have already established their cool season food plots, you know, the spring plots, um, with, with the later season plots coming up in the next, in the next month or two, depending on kind of where you are. So what, what, uh, let's dive into the details. What, what do you do specifically? What equipment do you utilize? How have you decided, um, to, 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 you know, specifically manage this property that sounds like honestly was, was in pretty good shape when you walked up and, and didn't need a whole lot of, of, uh, you know, diesel therapy. Oh yeah. Uh, so really my, uh, equipment is, was limited from the get go. Um, I paired up with a buddy. He actually lived down the road and has a tractor and, you know, tiller bush hog and some implements. And so I initially was using one of my big, uh, skag zero turn mowers. And I was cutting in a couple of food plots in the fields and I was like, this is taking too long. So I got my buddy out there with his uh, bush hog and he uh, essentially cut in uh, two and a half acres worth of food plots for me the first year. And I was teetering on just kind of broadcasting clover into it and just kind of feeling it out. And then, you know, spraying clethodim and 2,4-DB and kind of trying to wipe out the weed competition and let the uh, legumes kind of take off and give me a nice baseline. And then I would, I was thinking of seeding in either uh, cereal, cereal rye or winter wheat into that. Um, but he convinced me, he was like, Oh, I got this new tiller. I really want to use it. And I was like, all right, man, go for it. And, uh, I mean, it, it worked out pretty good, but disturbing that seed bank was a terrible idea because we had extensive sickle pod in there. I mean, I'm, I'm still battling it today. I was out there Earlier this afternoon, I could see all the sickle pot heads starting to come up, and I was like, 
man, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> so there's a couple important things I think we should clarify here with what you just said. And that's an easy mistake to make, right? And you are, you and I were members of a no-till Facebook group. And we're mm-hmm. I think we're both members of the, you know, whitetail food plot group or like a couple different groups that kind of dip into these different schools of thought, right? So we got regenerative, we've got no-till, and we've got like tillage food plots, right? Do you yeah. kind of want to break down the basics of those real quick? Yeah. So I think when everyone thinks of like agriculture and food plots, you think of the traditional tillage, right? You come in and you just do a blanket application of like glyphosate, you know, and you do that once or twice, kill everything, come in with a tiller and just churn all the dirt up for the first, you know, four, six inches until you hit that hard pan. Um, And a hard pan is essentially when you till the same spot year after year after year. And then you know, eight, 12 inches deep, wherever that tiller stops, it just becomes this hard layer of clay where essentially all the roots can't survive. So that's, I think that was a big aspect of why I started breaking away from the uh, traditional tillages. Those fields were tilled for many years and there was, there still is an extensive hard pan out there, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's important to emphasize that like tillage has its place and, and there's a, there's a reason that this is kind of thought of as like that, that classic style. Right. And it's because what it really does well is it establishes that seed to soil contact, which is what is critical for germination of any seed, whether it be a food plot seed or an agricultural seed. And so if you put yourself in the mind of a, of a farmer, someone who's, you know, planting a cash crop, and that's going to be, you know, the, his livelihood for the year is dependent on the success of that crop. Um, it's easy to see why germination of those seeds is like one of the, if not the most critical factor in that in that initial phase. And so, you know, when you till it, you can you can basically maximize that seed to soil contact, and you can you can then manage it, um, you know, as needed with with herbicides or whatever. So, I mean that's kind of the the rationale behind it and it, it it has its place and you know if you if you understand that mindset um you can you can start to start to understand why it became thought of as that kind of classic style but then you start to you know you, you dive a little deeper and you start to understand the implications of those those years of tillage and what that does to the soil that creates that hard pan and um you know it it has some challenges and that's why some of these other methods like no-till and regenerative have have really you know, kind of come into the, into vogue in recent years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, traditional tillage, I mean, like you said, it has its perks, especially with the larger seeds and corn and stuff like that. You need to set it, you know, an inch, two inches deep, whatever. Um, so, but I wanted to break away from that and I'm really focusing on the no-till and regenerative plotting. So no-till kind of as it, you know, states, either you can just broadcast uh, the seed and it'll just grow on its own. Um, typically this is going to go better with your clover seeds, your smaller seeds, your brassicas, turnips, and stuff like that. Um, oats won't fare too well. Um, your cereal rise will do a little bit better, but typically if you're going to just do a blanket broadcast application without a no-till drill, um, I would increase the rates probably close to double, honestly because a lot of that seed is going to die. It's going to get eaten by birds or it's just going to dry up. It's not going to get that seed to soil contact that it needs. So that's one drawback to the no-till planting. But 
the I think the weed competition benefits offset that, but that's just a personal opinion of mine. Yeah, and you know, honestly, a listener may not have a choice in which uh, which method they go with, and I didn't really have a choice. I mean, Brett, you and I we're in our twenties and we're trying to manage land, and it's not like we're you know we don't have money pouring out of our ears and. You know, buying a set of cutting discs is expensive. Um, and, you know, you may not always have a buddy down the road who'll come come do it. You may not have a, a Wade or, or whoever to come knock it out for you. And so instantly I was drawn to the no-till process because you can do it with less expensive equipment. I'm fortunate enough to have a, a tractor and a bush hog, which is really, you know, all you need to keep the grass or keep the vegetation cut down. And then you can seed into that and then use that vegetation that you cut as kind of a, a thatch to hold moisture and, and use those seeds um, to, to keep them or to help your germination rates. But what you're talking about with like using, you know, doubling the rate of seeds, that's exactly what I did. That's the advice I got too. I was like, I'm spending less money anyways, even though, you know, especially this year, seed is not cheap, um, mm-hmm. but I, I found it more cost uh it made sense from a cost perspective to just buy more seed, double it. And then I had fantastic germination rates, did it right before rain. I did, I don't even have a cult to pack or anything like that. I just ran over it. I just grabbed a six pack of beer and I just ran over it back and forth, back and forth with the tractor, trying to get that seed to soil contact that Perry was talking about. Cause that's, you know, without that <laughs> shit's not growing. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, Honestly, the sexy part about this whole no-till planting is, I mean, you got to think we're planting food that we're not going to cash out and make any money from. It's going to cost us money, you know? So how much money and resources is the average guy going to put into, you know, his two acre, six acre, half acre food plot, right? So you want to look at the costs. And unfortunately nowadays, I mean, a bag of triple 19 is what, like $40. I mean, it's absurd. So you want to look at it and say, how much money am I willing and able to put into this? And when you don't have to buy this equipment, you don't have to pay someone to go out there and you can say, hey, I can just come out here and cut it with a zero turn or I can just cut it with my bush hog that I already have. And then I can get a little shoulder spreader or a push spreader I use for my own lawn and I can use that. And essentially the only thing you have to buy is the seed. But I think... The most important thing that we kind of skipped over is before you do all this, you really want to take a soil test and see what you're working with, right? Um, Unfortunately, in the southeast, um, we have really acidic soils. So typically, uh, I'm seeing pHs of 5.3 to 5.7 without any uh, amending, you know, typically lime. Um, And, you know, a soil test is what, 10 bucks, you know, and a lot of people will skip the liming because they'll say, oh, I need, you know, two tons to the acre for this property or whatever. Um, that's too much work. So I'm just going to put down 300 pounds to the acre of triple 19. Well, unfortunately, depending on how low the pH is, a lot of that fertilizer is literally not even available to the plants. So you're essentially burning money at that point. So I think a lot of people are miseducated because a lot of these food plot companies are saying, hey, just put out 300 pounds to the acre, triple 19, when you plant this, and it'll be all right. When at the end of the day, that's 
not the case. You're just wasting your money. I hate to say. That's a that's an excellent point, and I'm glad you mentioned that because you're absolutely right. If you just because you put out X amount of of triple nineteen or whatever fertilizer you think is going to suit your needs, doesn't mean that all of that fertilizer is actually going to be available to the the plants that you intend it to be, depending on what is going on in the in the actual uh, soil itself. Um, it's it's a little bit simplistic, and as we've as you know, property managers and scientists and et cetera have learned more about this. We've realized that like there is an entire you know discipline of soil science that is you know it's an entire biome, it's an entire ecosystem that's living below the surface of the soil, and we've really just started to kind of scratch the surface of it. Um, there's actually a great YouTube video on this that I watched a while back. It's called um, I think it's called Carbonomics. Or something along those lines. I'm trying to remember who, who did it, but he, he spent about an hour really diving into the details of, of soil health and how the different, uh, minerals and, and, um, and, uh, compounds are available depending on, um, what is going on with your specific soil. And so you're right. If, if you don't have that pH address and that these soils are extremely acidic, I run into the same thing in North Carolina and Virginia, um, that's, that's step number one. And you can do a lot of good, whether you're, I mean, I see it with, with folks managing their lawns throughout they're fertilizing their lawns. And I'm like, you could honestly spend less money and less time and do just as good by addressing the pH issue rather than the fertilizer issue. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that's just missed far too often, honestly. And a lot of times the weeds will take off and you'll run into the Johnson grass, coffee weed, sickle pod, um, Palmer amaranth and all that, where whatever you plant is just going to get choked out, especially with our long growing season. Um, it doesn't matter, especially if you just plant a cool season plot and you have clovers and everything, they're going to get overrun. You're going to have to do a reset every single year instead of having this, you know, lush clover, alfalfa plot, whatever. And you can just go mow it you know, once, twice a summer, maybe spray some clethodim or 2,4-DB, not 2,4-D, 2,4-DB, because 2,4-D will smoke your clover plot. (laughs) (laughs) But another thing is it's cool because you can plant legumes, whether it's a soybean, a clover, um, you know, anything lab lab, and they're nitrogen fixing. So you don't have to put down nitrogen. You can save money in that aspect, especially with how expensive it is. So you can do companion planting where you could plant a legume with, you know, a grain. That's a pretty traditional, you know, uh, mixture right there. And then you can toss in a brassica. Um, and the good thing about brassicas, especially with these compacted soils, is when it drops, uh, you know, they help break the compaction in the soil. So that's a good way to start off if you have just um, one of these old logging decks or something like that, a brassica plot is a good thing to start off with because those tubers drop in and they break that clay apart where, you know, those trucks were sitting and just that clay soil got so compacted over the years. Um, That's a good thing. One of the biologists brought that up to me and it totally escaped my mind, but I mean, it's kind of common sense, right? The tuber just going to go into the soil and break everything apart. But yeah, the, I mean, I think uh, clovers are probably king when it comes to a poor man's food plot. Um, Yeah. They're easy to plant, 
and they fix nitrogen for you. Um, the crimson clovers, the red clovers, they can handle pretty low soil pHs. I mean, they'll do pretty decent at, you know, five and a half. Whereas you get into your white clovers, your ladinos and duranas and patriot clovers, um, they'll do okay at five and a half, but they really need a six or six and a half to, to really thrive. Whereas, I mean, your, your crimson will just handle it. And the same thing goes for your, uh, when it comes to like wheat, oats, and uh, cereal rye, the oats do a little bit better with the lower pH, whereas the cereal rye and the wheat do a little better when the pH is higher. Yeah, and it's easy when you're trying to plan out. Oh, what am I gonna what am I gonna plant this this fall? It's easy to get overwhelmed really quickly if you're not well versed or if you don't have a good mentor. <clears throat> um, the options are they're significant and just just looking at different types of clover you just listed like six different types of clover and it's like all right red or white or like whatever what what type of what the hell is even a brassica like cereal cereal grains and and rye grains and like you know and then you you go to the store and every store you see like oh throw and grow throw and grow you're like you just you know open the bag throw it out there and you have a food pot and that stuff's total bullshit it's all like it's like 90 percent rye grass like which is trash like your deer not it's gonna look pretty but your deer don't want anything to do with it and everybody i'm sure i would love to know the tens of thousands of dudes who get burned on that every year just like oh 9.99 tractor supply yeah i'll throw it out there and i didn't really realize you know I mean, it takes some thinking and, and it takes some planning. And, you know, like you said, step one, soil test. So if you don't know where to get a soil test, Whitetail Institute, they'll ship it right to your house and then you can ship it back and they'll give you a full readout and, uh, you know, all your, well, whatever the hell, uh, you guys know what's in it. I don't know. Organic material and like, I don't know. What am I trying to say, Perry? All that shit. And then uh, if not, you can do your uh, local extension office and they'll do it as well usually faster and cheaper. It's a really underutilized uh, resource there. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a good point because it's the, the extension office is, is typically an arm of whatever state you happen to be in. It's land grant university. So for like me, it's, it's NC state. If you're up in Virginia where our family farm is, it's Virginia tech for you guys, yeah, I guess it's, it's UGA. UGA. Yeah. And so, yeah, those, you know, those, um, those land, uh, uh, land grant universities, they have all those resources available uh, for uh, primarily, I mean, it was, it was developed for the agriculture industry, but um, food plotters and, and land managers have realized that they can take advantage of those same resources. And like you said, I mean, it's, it's pun intended dirt cheap to get a soil test. And so if you, if you don't know what that baseline is, um, you're not going to be able to maximize your results. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think going back, a lot of guys, you know, have that debate every season. What am I going to plant, right? I mean, there's so many options, whether it's the clovers, alfalfas, oats, brassicas, corn, soybeans, yada, yada. And something that I like to look at is you look at your property and then I like to zoom out, you know, and so you can see a mile around, right? See what do my neighbors have? What do my neighbors' neighbors have? What is the key element that's missing? And a lot of times it's actually covered. I mean, it's, it's simple as that. There's not quality thick cover. And, you know, kudzu and privet hedge isn't quality thick cover. Um, you want native forbs and grasses and stuff like that. That's your best native cover. But then also when you kind of start zooming back in, 
you look at how your property lays out, you know, where's my access is. And so like my one farm, my only access is from the west side. So everything else is landlocked. So if I have a due west wind, I can't even hunt that property because everything is going to smell me before I even get there, before I step out of the truck. So when I look at our prevailing wind, it's from typically the north, northwest for October, November, December. You know, the, the peak core of our deer season here and our rut. So I like looking at that and saying, okay, if I'm going to plant a food plot, what is going to pair best with my access and that prevailing wind and that best time I want to go deer hunt? And a lot of times, you know, you could do a three-way of uh, grains. That'll work pretty good. Um, but if I went in and I said, I want to plant, you know, uh, a cool season plot or a warm season plot, and I want to do, you know, straight soybeans or something like that, that would work really well for that property because typically in the warm season, our winds are going to come out of the south of the east. So those deer wouldn't even smell me when I access that property. And so on the flip side, my uh, property in Merriweather County, my only access is from the south. So in the peak rut with that north-northwest wind, I mean, I could slide in there and they would never smell me. Well, if I wanted, on the flip side, if I wanted to plant a warm season plot with that south wind, they would smell me walking out of the truck. So a soybean plot wouldn't really make sense on that property with how it lays out and where my access is and everything like that. So I think that's another element that a lot of guys don't think of when it's, you know, what should I plant where? Yeah, that's critical. That's, that's uh, it's not something you hear discussed a ton. I mean, we talk about access all the time and wind and I mean, you know, checking trail cameras. I mean, you, you know, there's guys out there that you can go, you can get crazy with, with being in, you know, intentional about how you're accessing a property year round, whether you're doing scouting or, or, uh, you know, what have you, but to actually build that into your strategy of not only, um, what you're going to plant, but where you're going to plant it and, and specifically have, you know, having, being intentional about where you're going to have your cool season plots versus your warm season plots is, I mean, it's, that's kind of getting to a, a next level, um, that it's, it's not hard to do. These aren't hard things to figure out. But if you can, if you can implement that, I, I mean, I got to imagine that's, that's going to pay dividends. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things, you know, hunting public land for so many years, it was like, oh, if I could only, you know, plant a food plot here or there, create a pinch point or a funnel here or there, it would, you know, be a gold mine. And now all of a sudden, you know, I have this property where it's, you know, a clean slate and it's like, I can do this now, you know, I can make this happen. And there's a couple of spots where, you know, going from thick bedding and I can create a staging area into the food plot and all this. And I'll put a mock scrape leading in the staging area with the cell camera. So I don't even have to go out there. You know, when that deer goes and hits that mock scrape in that staging area, leaving the bedding area to hit the food plot, I know he's there. So the next day or the next time I can, I'll just slide in there and I'll go kill him. And that's how I killed. Uh, he was. A big seven point. It was actually on the lease in Merriweather, though. Um, I picked the lease up from a buddy. So essentially between the two of us, we had six years of experience with this deer. So he was at least six years old. 
Um, but yeah, I was put, that that old gnarly one you killed? Yeah, he was a uh, mainframe seven, but I think he had eleven scorable points. Yeah, that one was he cool, was, man. Oh yeah, he was dude. He was two fifty plus. I was winded dragging him downhill. <laughs> yeah, he but, was no, so was, cool, man. Yeah, it was cool because I set up a cell camera on a scrape leading to my food plot, and he was betting on the neighbor's property. But he was walking down the ridge and he was staging in this oak flat. And then he would go and he would hit my food plot, uh, obviously, at dark. So I knew, you know, I had to get closer to his bedding. I just hung that cell camera there. And when I started seeing him starting to hit it in daylight, I went in there. uh, I killed him October 30th. But, I mean, that's just utilizing, you know, cell cameras, topography, mock scrapes, food plots, and just utilizing all of that and tying it in together to make your life easier. So it's, you know, you got to hunt smarter, not harder. That's awesome, man. I, that's uh that's, that sounds like every property manager's dream right there. Um, so I, I want before we get, you've, you've said like half a dozen different things that I could just chase rabbits down those holes all night. But before we, before we get off onto those tangents, um, we've covered, we've covered, tillage and we've covered uh non-till um regenerative food plots is is something that is kind of gaining a little traction in the whitetail world have you have you implemented that specifically and if so you know break down for the listeners who may not know what that looks like what it is and then then how you've done it if, if you have on these properties yeah so i've just started kind of dabbling with the whole regenerative thing um but really it's you're gonna plant a lot of times you're going to pair an annual plant with a perennial. So quick breakdown, the perennials take longer to put their roots in, but the annuals grow faster. But the browsing pressure can suppress perennials, so you have to pair them with a companion crop. That's why like with a, a white clover, you want to plant it with like an oat or something. So the browse pressure is on the oats, so the white clovers can get taken established basically yeah that's what i did with cereal rye in my clover this year it kind of acted as a nurse crop which was a whole another depth to this whole thing that i didn't understand i I was just like oh yeah throw some clover out let it grow but it makes total sense you got to give it a chance to to grow up and, and and take hold well, and if you look at, if you go and you look at some sort of natural system and there's a ton of, you know, in our, in our area in the Southeast, there's a ton of natural uh, forage out there, especially this time of year, but all these things grow at different rates. They mature at different rates. They're, they're palatable to the deer at different times of year, depending on whether it's the, you know, the emergent shoots that are first coming out of the ground or the leaves or, um, you know, the, the buds, uh, the twigs for some of your woody species dependent on the species and dependent on the time of year. And all those things are growing, you know, at different times. And there's, you can't, you can't walk into a natural system and find a monoculture. Like it just doesn't exist in nature. And so when we started to realize that as, as food plotters and as land managers, it's like, Oh, you know, some light bulbs start going off. Then, then you can really work with that companion planting, identify what's going to be, you know, kind of that, that nursery crop um, for, for your, you know, your primary target, if that's clover, um, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's something that makes all the sense in the world, but for whatever reason, it's like, it just wasn't the way it was done traditionally. Yeah, unfortunately, but yeah, so regenerative plotting a lot of times with these annuals, when they throw a seed head, 
you want to wait for that seed head to kind of die off. You know, when you see that red clover, the crimson clover, when it starts going from that bright red to that brown, you want to wait until you have a rain coming and then you can come in and you can mow it and it'll disperse all those seeds naturally into the soil. And that's essentially just a quick breakdown of regenerative plotting. You can get into, um, I know buckwheat's a big thing, sun hemp. Those are big soil builders. And you can kind of regenerative plot into those where you can plant buckwheat and then you can kind of pair that with, uh, you know, you can still have your clovers in there. So when you terminate that buckwheat crop by just, um, you know, crimping and killing it or even uh, clovers go dormant during the summer. So you can spray, I think it's uh, two ounces per acre of glyphosate and that's going to kill the actively growing buckwheat but it's not going to kill your clover because a lot of times, at least in the Southeast, um, that clover, it kind of goes dormant. It's still green, but it kind of goes dormant during the summertime. So you can utilize glyphosate and stuff like that and terminate that buckwheat crop. And uh, it's a little bit regenerative. Um, You can let the buckwheat go to seed and then you can kind of let it keep going. I haven't personally grown buckwheat just yet. But it's definitely something I've been eyeing um, just for its soil building effects. And, uh, I mean, it's, you know, pretty persistent for suppressing weeds as well. When, you, when you're when you doing your termination, do you – have you typically done, you know, chemical termination or, you know, mechanical with a, with a roller crimper or something along those lines? So I don't have a roller crimper at this point, so I've just been doing chemical termination at this point, yeah. Do you use a backpack sprayer or are you lucky enough to have uh, some kind of boom tank on the back of a tractor? <laughs> so I invested in a uh, one of those electric backpack sprayers yeah. and it's a game changer. And I have a 35 gallon water tank. So you got to think I'm out here spraying uh, <laughs> two and a half acres of plots with a four gallon backpack sprayer. That's Dude, the man style. That's what I'm doing, man. I, about, I thought I was going to have a heat stroke last year when I was doing it in August. And then I was like, ah, I'm, I'm kind of earning it. I'm putting in the work. And then after I made like the 12th trip up to the house to go get water from the well, I was like, this is fucking dumb, man. This is stupid as hell. Nope. No, but yeah, that's, I think that's one of the things where I've chased, I'm looking into going all clover and then I'll do uh seed in, you know, the brassicas and the, uh, you know, the oats and uh, winter wheat and cereal rye into that. So the clover will kind of have like my baseline and that'll kind of suppress some of the weeds. And then, so that keeps my inputs, you know, spraying and mowing a little bit lower than if I went out there and I tilled, you know, that disturbs the seed bank again. And then I have all this, you know, flush of sickle pod and Johnson grass and all this stuff I really don't want to deal with. So I think that's one of the big perks of this whole no-till regenerative stuff is you can just go out there and mow it and it's going to disperse the plants that you want and you're not going to till it and have the these weeds that you don't want growing. So here we are June 14th recording this. When are you starting to put your plan into action? When are you uh, implementing your game plan, Brett? Uh, typically... As far as like planting or something like that? Yeah, as far as like when you're going to start like 
actively keeping it cut and keeping it a, a certain length and not letting it overgrow. And then when yeah. are you, when are you spraying? When are you planting? What's your timeline look like? Are you waiting until August or what are you doing? Yeah, typically, I mean, honestly, it really depends on what the weeds are looking like, right? If I have Johnson grass taken over a plot, I mean, you have to go in immediately and cut it and hit it with clethodon pretty aggressively because it's just going to be a mess, right? But a, a good clover plot, I mean, you may only have to cut it once a summer, and a lot of guys don't even mow clover plots in the summertime. Um, typically, it may take one or two applications of clethodon and 2,4-DB, um, just depending on the weeds you have. The food plot I have, on my Merriweather lease, it's an established uh, clover plot. So I'll go out there, you know, typically in once in June and once in August, and I'll just spray some of the weeds. Now these plots I have in Pike County on the other farm, um, they're newer plots. So I'm battling, man, I got sweet gums. Um, dude, I got, unfortunately, just a wide array of uh, weeds. So it's just nonstop going out there and I'll go mow and I'll go spray, go mow and spray and I'll see what I'm dealing with. Right. But unfortunately there really is no like one clear cut solution to it. You have to see what you're dealing with and go from there. Um, and especially what you have planted, you know, if you planted, um, chicory or something like that, the two, four DB is probably going to kill it, especially multiple applications of that. So I think that's another reason why I favor, the clover food plots because you can utilize clethodim to kill the grasses and then you can utilize 2,4-DB to kill a lot of the uh, broadleaf weeds. So you can do that and kind of have something always growing. And because uh, I know I saw a couple of articles, I know there's localized dry spot and basically it just means if there's bare soil, um, the polarity of the molecules get inverted and essentially the water doesn't percolate into the soil and it's a big problem and i i did read an article uh two weeks ago and it basically said that um all of the the microbes in the soil if you come out and you terminate an entire field of glyphosate you essentially kill all the microbes in the soil within like 12 days or something crazy like that so i say all that to say you always want something growing and I think that's one of the perks of regenerative farming. It's more sustainable and you promote those natural um, microbes in the soil that we're just learning about. Yeah, and that's that's critical. And that's that's something that the agriculture industry has started to figure out as well. And it's why you see a lot of a lot of farmers using cover crops now when they're, you know, during the during the off season or during the you know, during the dormant times where they don't have a cash crop actively growing is because a lot of those microbes and, and that bacteria that is naturally occurring in the soil is to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier is what makes a lot of those nutrients available to the plants. Um, that ecosystem that's, that's there in the soil naturally evolved with the plants that were there and they have a symbiotic relationship where, you know, the plants feed them and they feed the plants and they make a lot of those nutrients available. And so, I mean, you're absolutely right. That bare soil, it, it, you, you basically eliminate that <laughs> entire ecosystem that's living underneath the soil surface. And then you also, like you said, eliminate the, the, uh, the moisture, um, capacity, the, the ability for that soil to, to keep and hold moisture, um, after a rain event and make that water available to the plants. And so, 
not having bare soil or minimalizing minimizing the the amount of bare soil is is definitely definitely critical yeah absolutely and and like i mean runoff erosion and everything um i mean the best parts of the soil are typically the, the finest particles a lot of the times so if you have bare soil there's nothing keeping you know that quality loam within that clay so it separates the loam from the clay and all your good soil is getting you know run off onto your neighbor's property or something like that and then you get washouts and all the stuff you don't want to deal with so and then essentially that's just more work for you on the back end so yeah in layman's terms just keep some growing there all times <laughs> you should tell them about uh your battle with your invasives on your farm perry yeah, it's it's brutal and it's 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 a good point because, you know, to go back to your question Carter asking about, you know, the the timelines and and how you establish your game plan, when you're going to plant, when you're going to have these these specific activities. A lot of that, I mean, there's there can be rules of thumb and but a lot of that really depends on where you're located, the particulars of your property, what invasives you might be, you know, battling whether it's kudzu and privet or whether it's Japanese stilt grass or whether, you know, in our case at our family farm, we have just a ton of, of Japanese barberry and an autumn olive or Russian olive, you know, these, these kind of woody shrubs that have gotten established in the region. Um, the, the birds love the berries. And so they, they spread like wildfire. Um, once they, once they get to that maturity level where they're start to produce berries. And that's what we're seeing on our property is that's been neglected for honestly, a couple of decades um, since my my grandfather passed away and was no longer actively managing the farm, and so dependent on what's going on on your property is really is really going to shape the particulars of your management strategy. Um, if you have if you're battling one of these invasive species that are ultra aggressive, whether it's stilt grass or, or kudzu or privet or what have you, um, you're going to have to address some of that if it's in an area where you're targeting you know, something like a food plot. Yeah, absolutely. It's not really an invasive species, but I mean, I, I consider sweet gums invasives. <laughs> They're useless. I mean, They're weeds. I'm glad, I'm glad you referred to it as weeds because it's, it's the only weed that can have a, a DBH of, you know, like 40, 40 inches. I, I hate them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, they're miserable to deal with them. Um, like I said, we burned the farm um, this February, basically the end of February, um, early March, and it was a hot fire. I mean, you know, when I was talking to uh, his name was Tyler, and I was like, "Do you guys like you know?" There's different types of fires, like backing fires and all this, and he was like, "No, we just run the four wheeler with a drip torch on the back. We just drive around." I was like, "All right, sounds good." And I mean, like I said, these fields there was flames, fifteen, sixteen foot tall. I mean, they were killing. Um, there was a couple of small pines that got killed and it was, I mean, it was cool to watch, but I mean, I would have been terrified being kind of close to it. But, uh, all that being said, I, you know, he told me it was going to kill a lot of these sweet gums because a lot of the sweet gums were, you know, that six to eight foot range down to saplings. And a lot of the small saplings and stuff did get killed, but the ones that were larger in that, you know, four to eight foot range, I'm having to spot spot spray them with the backpack sprayer right now, you know, doing that when it's, 
you know, 90, 100 degrees and there's ticks and chiggers and snakes, uh, it's not ideal. So I think hindsight's twenty twenty, and I'm starting to focus more on doing these, uh, you know, late spring, early summer burns. And then I'm going to look into doing these uh, active growing season burns as well. I was, that's actually what I was just about to ask you. Uh, I remember I stumbled upon some sort of, of research or article or something. I think it was out of the university of Arkansas, but I, I wouldn't swear to it. Um, and it, it, I don't think it was targeting sweet gum specifically, but it was this active season um, burning. And it was like, you know, kind of micro burning. I mean, we're, they weren't talking about burning large swaths of land, but, but real small areas. And they were, they were coming at it from the approach of if you come in now kind of this time of year, or even a little bit later in the summer and you burn a small area of land or, you know, during the active growing season, you kill a lot of that woody brow or that, that woody vegetation. Um, in this case, you know, sweet gum is what we're talking about. Then you can really create just with a little bit of fire, a natural food plot, because there's going to be time at the back end of the summer and the fall and these, you know, these long growing seasons that we have in the Southeast where you're going to get a whole lot of natural um, herbs and forbs and grasses growing in August, September, October that provide these great little micro, you know, natural micro plots uh, for the deer. And they were coming at it from the, you know, this is a great way um, to create these little, these little natural plots for archery hunting. And, you know, you can, you can literally, if you know, pick the tree you want to sit in for bow season you know, draw a hundred foot radius around it, burn that. And then you've got a, you've got a little, little natural food plot, uh, right there around your bow spot. Um, which I imagine would potentially be a way to manage the, the sweet gums as well. Oh yeah. I think I know it was a, a national deer or QDMA article, whichever at the time it was written. I think I saw that, but yeah, I mean, it's, definitely a cool idea and it just goes to show you don't necessarily need a, a traditional food plot you can utilize the natives that you have available and i think i've seen a couple of uh articles where you know they've done um the tissue samples of like pokeweed and ragweed and you know other native forbs that we have and uh you know there was like 13 to 20 something percent in a protein i mean it's pretty oh, yeah. substantial I mean, it's obviously crazy. in a drought year, it's a little bit less. And then, you know, when it's wet, it's significantly more. But I mean, you got to think if you can get, you know, 20% from some ragweed, you can save a whole bunch of time and money by just striking a match and lighting, uh, you know, starting up the chainsaw and just going to town. Yeah. And it's, it's completely, you know, antithetical to the, the tradition. You know, if you'd told some old timer 50 years ago that you were going to try to encourage something like, like ragweed or, you know, goldenrod or pokeberry, um, he would have looked at you like you had two heads, but I mean, those, those are those, a lot of that native, uh, vegetation is widely used not only for, for food, but also for cover. I mean, a good stand of goldenrod that's five, six, you know, eight feet tall provides a ton of cover. Um, in the summer and fall months for fawns, for turkey poults, you know, for quail, if there's some, you know, a little bit of bare ground underneath and it's not too dense and allows the quail to, you know, the quail poults to kind of move through there, something like that. I mean, it's, you know, you just look at where you are, look at kind of a, um, you know, the, the native species that are there, emphasize those, even if it's in, you know, small areas and you can do wonders. Do you, uh, do you guys want to roll, just keep rolling and see how far this takes us? 
or do you want to – what's your timeline like, Brett? I don't know. It, it doesn't matter. I'm cool with whatever you guys want. I mean, there's still a lot. I mean, we could do a whole nother part two on just ha- the habitat management aspect. I mean, we're just now getting into it. So we could either do it another night or just keep rolling here. What do you guys want to do? I'm, I'm, I'm game All either right. way. All right, let's roll then. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us this week on part one of Southern Deer and Land Management with my good friend, Brett Beato. Uh, I know Perry and I had a great conversation with him and really loved it. So thanks for joining us this week. Stick around for part two next week. We'll see you guys then. Uh, In the meantime, please be sure to drop us a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. And don't forget about the new HLE Summer Drop that came out July 15th. Go check it out on the website at huntliftdeep.com and follow us on Instagram at Hunt Lift Official. Thanks so much, guys.